success doesn't always feel like success. And when it looks like you've made it to the rest of the world, you can be left feeling like there's still so much to do, but without a clear direction or plan. On the Success That Last podcast, we're going behind the scenes with business owners, real estate investors, and industry consultants to deconstruct the complicated topic of success. We'll be exploring questions, strategies, and experiences that help create clarity and confidence surrounding your financial decisions. Here's your host, Jared Siegel. Welcome back to Success That Lasts. Go back in time to that moment that you decided to walk away from the certainty of a paycheck to chase a bigger, brighter dream. Maybe your own company, your own real estate portfolio. What was it that compelled you to make that move? Some of you are planners. Some of you just jumped. Some of you ran through a SWAT. What were my strengths, my weaknesses, opportunities, threats? But as we think through that, as we think what might have been a threat in that moment, what didn't we know that we didn't know back then but we do now? And today's conversation is about that all-too-dangerous category. Far too many of today's business leaders and owners are laser-focused on delighting their clients, growing top lines, developing their teams, when out of nowhere they get a notice from a state about a rule or a law or tax that they didn't know about. Harriet Struthers is a gifted speaker, contributor, and advisor on the topic of state and local tax. She brings over three decades of experience, both from the public accounting side as well as the industry where she was a national tax director for a publicly traded company. Today's conversation will reflect upon the more recent Wayfair case decided by the Supreme Court, as well as the more local Oregon corporate activities tax, otherwise known as the CAT. It's incredibly complicated to navigate the over 12,000 tax jurisdictions here in the United States. And Harriet's going to share some of the tips, tricks, and planning opportunities that exist in this ever-dynamic and changing environment of state and local tax. All right. We're live with Harriet Struthers. Harriet, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to uh, to have you here today. So question for you is SALT, state and local tax. How did you find yourself leading the lapse state and local tax practice? Well, Jared, it was a pretty long route to get here. Um, I started at a public accounting firm a lot of years ago, more than I care to admit, and found that public accounting was not for me, and I moved very quickly into industry. I eventually spent probably about 15 years with a large Fortune 500 company, uh, Ryland Homes and Ryland Mortgage. So we were in the lending and home building industry, and uh, ultimately I was the tax director there. And during my time there, Mostly what we could not get from the public accounting firms was the state and local tax piece. They all knew how to make ideas and how to plan things and how to come up with some great planning ideas, but they didn't have the level of detail. Back in those days, state and local taxes were usually referred to as baby taxes because they all just kind of played off of your federal tax. I retired from there in 2005 took a break, moved to the Northwest, and I wanted to get back to work. And I thought about it long and hard, and I realized that what public accounting didn't have before, maybe now they were ready for. And so I just sort of rebranded myself because I had all the state and local tax experience as a state and local tax person and got swooped up pretty quickly back into public accounting. 
And with the increase in state and local taxes and the states wanting money and needing money, there's a lot of planning and defending to be done in the state and local environment, especially with the new corporate activity tax in Oregon. That's, uh, that's an interesting journey. Uh, so public accounting to industry, back to public accounting. How do you think that experience kind of has established the way that you serve clients today, having been on both sides of the table? It's really kind of interesting, and it's really interesting for me. Um, I was on that side of the table, and people asked me to collect information and to compile data and to sort it and filter it. And from that side of the table, I looked at them and was wondering if they were absolutely nuts and how did they imagine that I would get there. And so because I had to do that and be more creative, I tend to be able to help clients more easily figure out how to collect their data. I also speak a language that many, not all, but many public accountants don't speak. And, and I understand what life is like in those particular trenches. In public accounting, we have our own trenches, but it's just very different. It's kind of a different language. So state and local taxes is incredibly dynamic. It, it feels like just as soon as you get done educating our clients about a new law, there's another incredibly complicated new law to, to talk about. So uh, it wasn't but a year or two ago you were talking about the Supreme Court and Wayfair. So how has that played out uh, over the last year or two? Wayfair has played out in the sales tax arena. It has created a, um, a great platform for the sales and use tax compliance providers. The states are actually very quickly adopting rules. Most have already adopted them. And many taxpayers are learning more about it and catching up and coming into compliance. The overreach of the Wayfair ruling is that it's creeping into income tax and the states are increasingly imposing economic nexus statutes that are trying to drag companies into their income tax regime, just like Wayfair dragged them into their sales tax regime. Interesting. So now that we're not even fully digested with Wayfair, I guess that's more of a federal trend. We have a local law here that just recently passed in Oregon, the corporate activities tax. At a high level, kind of explain to me what that corporate activities tax is or cat tax. So we like to call it the cat and the corporate activities tax, other than being kind of the Harriet Struthers permanent employment plan, because it's kept me so dang busy, it is a gross receipts tax it is a modified gross receipts tax, actually. It is on your Oregon commercial activity, which is really your sales that your customers in Oregon benefit from. And you get a small reduction for the equivalent of your cost of goods sold or your labor costs apportioned under the rules within and without the state. And you don't get the deduction for all of them. From that, you also get a million-dollar deduction, and the tax itself is 0.57% of that remaining taxable base after deductions. Interesting. So this is a, a new type of tax for us as Oregonians. Are there similar taxes for business owners in other states? There are a couple of similar taxes. The 
Ohio cat tax exists and it's very similar to this. The Texas margin tax is similar to this and the Washington B&O has fewer deductions. But what those state taxes don't have is a complementary income tax with a minimum tax to go with that. So this is above and beyond the existing Oregon income tax. The cat tax isn't a cat tax, it's the cat. The cat is an additional tax that is paid by the seller of all properties, goods, and services. There are some exemptions. Um, certain nonprofits are exempt, groceries are exempt, fuel that propels motor vehicles is exempt, and there are a host of other items. That's interesting. So I guess when regulators or legislatures actually are coming up with a new law, there's all kinds of details that they didn't know they needed to flush out. So as a new law is being crafted, kind of behind the scenes, what's the process that helps inform the rules and statutes for how the law will be applied in practice? So the way that it works is in every law that's passed by the legislature, it affords some governmental group the authority to write rules. So the law is the statute. And in this case, the Department of Revenue was given the unenviable job of writing the rules. And the rules explain the statute. And they have to explain the statute within the parameters of the law that was passed, as well as how it interacts with the existing law in the state. So if there is a clause in this law that contradicts existing law, something will have to be corrected. And it can't be corrected by rule. It would have to be corrected by legislation. And we anticipate in the February legislative session to see a number of corrections coming through. And most of those are to accommodate where the bill passed contradicts with existing law. Interesting. So here in Q1 of 2020, there's all kinds of things that our clients are probably thinking about needing to do as they prioritize the year and need to get their arms wrapped around this CAT, corporate activities tax. What would you identify as maybe one or two of the most important next steps for an organ owner? I think the most important next step is to not panic. So taxpayers are required to register for the tax when they reach $750,000 of Oregon gross receipts or commercial activity. And so if you're not going to reach that in Q1, then you have a little more time to figure out what your tax base is going to be so that you can make estimated payments. If you believe that you're going to be close to that in your first quarter, then I recommend that you, with the rules that we have today, make a good faith effort to calculate it based on your 2019 income. So clearly this new tax creates a trap for an owner, but more importantly, does it create any new potential planning opportunities? Well, maybe. We can't really be sure about the planning opportunities until the rules are out, but there are a couple of traps that it might be nice to try and develop ways to better manage your business. Um, the tax itself is applied on a unitary basis. So all related entities with more than 50% common ownership are combined into one return. 
And that million dollar deduction that I talked about before is per return. So if we combine 10 entities or 10 businesses into a return, we would only get one $1 million deduction. But if our business structure was such that they did not need to be combined because maybe they weren't commonly owned, then we would afford ourselves additional million dollar deductions. There's also another one that's out there that's looking promising, and that is there is an exemption for funds collected by an agent. So most notably, you would think about a realtor selling a home. They don't collect the full sales price on the home. They're merely an agent of the homeowner, and they collect just their commission. And so we're waiting for the rules to give us a better understanding of how that really works so that we can research contracts and such and make sure that if there is the opportunity to afford a company an agency exemption or exception, that we can make that happen. So at this point, as you kind of began the process of getting your arms wrapped around the law and what we know and more importantly, what we don't know, have you identified specific industries or business types that seem to be more impacted by the organ cat than others? Absolutely. When we talk about the deductions that you're afforded, you're afforded a deduction for 35% of either your cost of goods sold or your labor cost. And think about maybe property owners, rentals that use a property management company. They have no cost of goods sold. They have no labor inputs because the management company are not their employees. And so really the only deduction they have is on the top line is that million dollar deduction. And so they're effectively paying the cat on almost their entire gross income. Whereas if you look at a manufacturer, you have a big cost of goods sold deduction. It's not as big as it should be, in my opinion, but at least you get some benefit of the deduction. So 10 years ago, I had never even heard the phrase salt, right? State and local tax. It just didn't seem to be something that our small business clients were dealing with very often. And now it's an everyday conversation. It strikes me as an incredibly dynamic space. I guess being in the industry and leading our practice over the last 10 years, how has state and local tax evolved? Well, it's come a long way. It's come from baby taxes because when somebody got caught up by a state that they weren't filing in, it was a small adjustment. But over time, the way that you carve out your income and assign it to the different states have changed. Each state is in the business of making money to cover their budget. And the way they make their money is through taxes. And so their job is to collect the most taxes possible. But really, they're supposed to only collect the amount of taxes that are due and owing. So the laws are crafted in order to collect the most tax possible. And generally, if you look at the laws the way they're written today, they favor taxing out-of-state businesses. That's what Wayfair is bringing it to the table. And that's what the CAT's bringing to the table. It's taxing out-of-state companies as well as in-state companies. And so when we see audits and discovery today, the numbers are much, much larger than they were previously. And it's no longer baby taxes. That's the other thing I think that's interesting and often surprising to people are some of the new tools that states are using in the discovery process of what businesses might have nexus within 
their state. What are some of the more creative ways that you've seen states identify businesses that have conducted business sufficiently to warrant tax, but haven't yet paid it? So there is a large group that does information sharing and all of the states, except maybe two, currently are part of the information sharing agreement where the Internal Revenue Service shares the information with the states. So for example, the city of Portland has taken that information sharing and they have sifted through the data files they received and they've sent letters to every taxpayer with an Portland address that has business income to determine whether or not they should be filing in PDX. The same is true for Oregon. The most creative, though, is the state of Washington, where they're not revenue agents. They hire part-time employees to sit on the bridge, and they take photographs of placarded vehicles that are crossing the bridge into the state of Washington. And then they send those back to the Department of Revenue, and the Department of Revenue combs through their files to determine whether or not those taxpayers are actually filing taxes in the state of Washington. And if they're not, they get a letter and an audit. <laughs> My goodness, Sarah, uh, that's pretty entrepreneurial. Hats off to them. And for Oregon, you've got a couple of different states, north and south, that are pretty creative at collecting revenues. And so I guess an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure, right? Yeah, it's always good to understand what your exposure is and where you might be establishing nexus or an obligation to collect and remit sales tax or file and potentially pay income tax. It's always better to understand it and make your business decision knowing what your exposure might be should you be discovered. So more practically then, if I own a business and I'm trying to better understand what my exposure may or may not be, what would be the next step to actually get that information? Generally, what you want to do is you want to do a nexus study. We do them. You can do them yourself, although you probably want to get a better idea of the questions to ask yourself about your business. Physical presence in any state establishes nexus, so it could be a real quick nexus study. And if you go there for business purposes, you've established nexus in a filing requirement. However, there are other things that could limit your exposure to tax, things like Public Law 86-272, which affords sellers of tangible personal property protection from a tax based on net income. But there are a lot of caveats around that, and it's not a blanket protection. Sales tax, on the other hand, all you have to do is go into the state for any business purpose, and you have established nexus for sales tax. And then again, as a result of Wayfair, the states have established bright line benchmarks beyond which you have established nexus. So for most states, it's in the range of $100,000 of sales delivered into the state establishes nexus or 200 separate and distinct transactions into the state. So within our wealth planning practice, we don't often run into the conversation regarding state and local tax, but where it seems to come up all of the time is in the midst of a transaction. It seems to be a standard part of an acquirer or buyer's due diligence process. What's been your experience as it pertains to state and local tax within the M&A space? So I've sat on both sides of that table. I have sat on the acquirer side of the table and I have sat on the seller side of the table. And 
my best advice to any company that thinks they might want to or might entertain an offer anywhere down the road is to do a nexus study and an exposure analysis and determine what your exposure is. Because on the buyer side, the minute I find out that you have not investigated it or quantified it or made an informed business decision, my offer is going down or my escrow is going up or the form of the transaction may change because I don't want to take on your risk. But if you can satisfactorily show that you've done the Nexus study and the evaluation and establish what the risk is, you can show that it's minimal. And if you have those numbers and all that right up front, you can enter into what's called a voluntary disclosure and you, the seller, can manage that and try and save yourself as much money. A voluntary disclosure is simply coming forward to a state and saying, oops, I had Nexus, I made a mistake. And in exchange for me coming forward to you and paying the tax and interest, you will limit the number of years that you look back. So I could maybe just pay for the past three, four years. You would eliminate penalties, which usually range from 35% to 100%. And the 100% would be if you intentionally avoided the tax. And you just pay that tax for those few limited years plus interest. And that saves you, the seller, from the pain of the buyer dinging your sales price, changing the form of the sale, or even worse, taking ownership of any filing going forward, which could afford you with a larger bill than you really need to have for those years which you were the owner. So when I talked to our clients, I think one of them once told me that he thought there might be over a thousand jurisdictions do you have a sense of how many different tax jurisdictions a, a business owner today in the United States might be subject to? So there are more than 12,000 separate jurisdictions. Um, a lot of states have their own local taxing authorities and then their cities, et cetera. Not all of them are income tax. Not all of them are sales tax. Some of them are things like a business license, but there are way too many for any individual business person, let alone accountant to truly keep track of on a consistent basis and be able to speak to each and every one of them off the cuff. I feel really fortunate to have you on our team, to have a resource that is full-time focused on navigating the complexities of state and local tax. It's uh, an incredible resource, not only for us as a, as a team, but for our clients to be able to, to access you. It's one of those spaces that's far too often overlooked from the client's perspective, but as well as you know, the local accounting firm's perspective as well. Thanks, Jared. I like being here. Here to affirm. I'm here to affirm. Well, I guess on that final note then, 12,000 different jurisdictions and a business owner, though they're probably passionate about a lot of different things, probably state and local taxes in the top of their list. Not usually. Not usually. So I guess what guidance would you have for them in terms of they have to keep track of it, but there's so many other more important things, maybe day in and day out in terms of delighting their clients, keeping their teams happy and healthy, growing their business. How do you do so in a responsible way? How do you keep a pulse on this ever-changing state and local tax environment? So from my perspective, I read a lot. I read a lot and I jump on top of things like the cat as soon as they come up. I think that 
from a business standpoint, a lot of the business groups try to stay on top of those things. But most importantly, just taking the time to understand, at least annually during tax planning, what's going on and what's new. And we try to get out information on our blog as regularly as we can about new developments, things like the new Oregon retirement savings plan where employers are required to either offer a qualified retirement plan or offer the employee the option to withhold and deposit into the state plan. So there's a lot of things. I think you just have to get out and read or you need to ask your tax advisor what's new. Wonderful. Well, Harriet, thank you so much for our time and thank you for your expertise. It's a privilege to be with you today. Thanks, Jared. It's been fun.